At KPMG, our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. You really do. You look different places and you look in a crowd. Is she here? You look whenever you go past ditches and stuff like, am I going to see her body somewhere? Which is such a strange feeling. You never think that you're going to look for a person in a field. Hey guys, welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and next to Billy Jensen, who is in a mood. He is. He's, he's Randy today. He is Randy. What's, what's making you Randy? Randy? You know what? You're wearing a Henley, which I love. I right? love a Henley on a man. Uh-huh. But why the randiness? Why the randiness? Because you're spunky. You're pushing back. I'm pushing. Oh, oh, God forbid I push back against you too. <laughs> Not allowed. Yeah. Not allowed. It's just jarring. Yeah, it's jarring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we like you to just agree blindly with you know what? Yeah, you, you poke the bear so often the bear is gonna poke. Wake back. up. Yeah. Is Interesting. That, is that the saying? No, it's not. But I I'm, gonna, it was ma- I'm gonna make it a saying. Poke the pig. No, <laughs> it's, it's definitely poke the bear, but I don't think that the bear pokes no, back. The bear's gonna poke the bear back. Just, the bear is gonna maul you one day. Ooh. Right. Yeah. Somebody draw that. <laughs> All right, Billy. <laughs> what is today? Merch, Billy. What's today? You know what? Honestly, when we look at these categories and we look at what today is, every time I look at today, it seems depressing. We have today is name your PC day. Who names their computer? I don't have a PC. Nobody has a PC. No, even if it that that is your personal computer, even though it's not a that's called he has a it's name. It's an Apple. But Big what? Mac. Big Mac? It's a Mac. What? <laughs> I don't name my computer. I didn't even name my car. Little Mac. There's also Mac, Nas- Mac Attack. National Absurdity Day, which I feel every time I'm well, with you guys. Well, you're a human embodiment of that. <laughs> All right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. In life, day to day, we're in touch with our friends day in and day out. Constantly, we text, we call, we DM, we check in on each other, we connect. We treat each conversation 
with little weight though, because connecting is so effortless, so thoughtless, so easy. But there's plenty of time to talk later, talk tomorrow. But what if a casual conversation with a loved one ended up being the last? Would you be satisfied with your final words? In today's story, our first degree spoke to one of her best friends on the phone, and it was the last time she got to talk to her. In fact, this call was the last time her best friend would speak with anyone. According to the official website, Hollister, Missouri is an unusual Ozark town that is fascinating and covers an era when stock wars were waged between merchants and stockmen. Great carnivals promoted by the railroad were gala affairs, where men and women of an age gone by helped to build a unique English village in the Ozarks. And right next to Hollister is Branson, Missouri. And this town is known as a popular family vacation destination. With its 76 Country Boulevard lined with theaters, which once hosted mostly country music performers. Also along the strip are the Marvel Cave, the Wild West-style Dolly Parton's Dixie Stampede dinner attraction, and Silver Dollar City, an 1800s-themed amusement park with live music. And that's actually a place that I've always wanted to go to because it has a cool dark ride called The Flooded Mine where the country prison mine is flooded and some of the prisoners are trying to escape and then you have to shoot at them. Oh, that sounds kind of cool. So today's story, we're going back to the morning of March 21st, 2003. The top song on the radio was All I Have by Jennifer Lopez and LL Cool J. Movies in the theaters were bringing down the house and cradle to the grave. And everything appeared normal from the exterior of the Hollister Gables apartment complex, but something strange was happening within the building's interior courtyard. A resident of the Hollister Gables apartment complex looks out her window and spotted a two-year-old boy wandering around outside all by himself. The little boy was familiar. His name was Cole. And his mom was 19-year-old Becky Sutton. And while seeing Cole was a normal occurrence, he'd never once seen him without Becky. She was not in view, and typically she'd be a step behind him, carrying him or holding his hand, as you would expect with a two-year-old. The neighbor walked outside and grabbed Cole and called into Becky's apartment for her. This neighbor is thinking maybe Becky fell asleep and then Cole wandered out, or maybe she was in the shower and he got out. There had to be some explanation for this two-year-old being alone in this apartment building courtyard. But after calling out for Becky multiple times, it was becoming clear that Becky wasn't inside. And luckily, Becky's mother, Susan, lived close by. So she was able to be there within minutes. And Susan immediately feared that something bad had happened to her daughter. Becky and Cole were glued together. It was almost as if Becky never went anywhere without him. She even brought him with her to work every day. So to Susan, the chances that Becky went somewhere without Cole were slim to none. Something was wrong. Something or someone was keeping Becky from her son. Susan tried to stay calm as she started calling all of Becky's friends. And one of the first calls she made was to Becky's best friend, Bobby. Um, I want to say that it was around 10.30 or 11 in the morning. And she said, have you heard from Becky? And I said, well, I talked to her last night. Um, you know, why? What's going on? And she said, well, Cole was outside 
um, in the courtyard of her apartment. And he actually, her next door neighbor found him and he couldn't find Becky. And so he waited for a little bit and then he called her mom. That's, you know, she had gone over there and said that she'd waited for a while and she, she just wanted to know if I'd heard from her. And she had. She had spoken to Becky the previous night. She had called me earlier in the evening. Um, I was actually at work. I was a server at a restaurant in Branson. And she had called me at work and had just said, what are you doing later? I said, I don't know. You know, I'm still at work. Um, And she said, okay, well, call me whenever you get off work. And I was like, okay. Um, She actually had then called me back. I pretty sure that I had just gotten off work and she called me on my cell phone. Um, it was, I want to say between 1030 and 11 that she called me. She said, hey, so um, um, I just had this super weird thing happen. She said, my ex-boyfriend's cousin's husband just showed up at my house and I pretty much had to like kick him out and I said oh my gosh that's crazy are you okay and she's like yeah he cornered me in my kitchen and I had to like duck under his arm so I could get to my door and I threatened to call the police if he didn't leave so he left I said are you okay do you you know do you need me to come over you know I can bring my boyfriend with me we can come over um we can sit with you she's like no I think it's good I'm just gonna go to bed with Cole I said, okay, well, if you need anything, call me. And that's the last I heard from her. So Becky had recently reconnected with an ex she had in high school. And they're exes, but they're rekindling, and she was super excited about it. And it's this ex who Philip was married to the cousin of. So she had met Philip before, um, but they didn't have, like, a close relationship. It wasn't like she invited him over all the time. It was... She just knew of him, and he happened to have come over that night. So Bobby is relaying this story to Susan's mother, and she's obviously terrified. This guy, Phil, cornered Becky in her kitchen, tried to kiss her, and she escaped the kiss by ducking underneath him. He left once she threatened to call the cops, and this guy wasn't a total stranger to Becky, but like Bobby said, she offered to come over to be with Becky, but she didn't really seem rattled by the whole incident that happened. She said that she just wanted to go to bed with Cole. She loved her her son. Like, that was kind of her life. Um, She was trying really hard to to make it and to make it on her own. Her mom was super freaking out. And I mean, I was too. It was definitely worrisome. She would have never left Cole ever, whether that be to run down to do laundry or run across town. She would have never left him. So we were definitely worried. So it seemed like Bobby was the last person who had spoken to Becky before she'd gone missing. And she relayed this conversation she'd had with Becky to Becky's mom, Susan. So their fear of what could have happened is escalating. Who was this guy, Phil? Why was he there? And how could he be connected to this whole thing? But even beyond these initial leads, the possibilities are endless as to where Becky could be. So although Becky was extremely responsible in some ways, we got to remember that she's just 19. And she experimented like many teens do. Um, I didn't feel like that it was that heavy. Um, I had been around a couple times whenever she'd used. She smoked meth, um, which, you know, then I didn't understand what that drug was. I mean, yes, I knew what it was, but I didn't understand the ramifications of it and like how easily it is to become addicted to it. 
And from what I understood, it was like kind of a recreational drug for her. It was not something that she did every day. It was not something that she needed. And in my opinion, I still believe that to this day. It was not something that I thought that she was addicted to. But I do know that some of the people that she ran around with, that was an everyday addiction. That was a very big problem in their life, which I think that Philip was one of those people. So Bobby never observed any irresponsible behavior with this drug use. It was recreational. It was kind of like a take it or leave it sort of thing. So after Susan speaks to Bobby, she asks her to come over to Becky's apartment. And Becky's car was at the apartment and it looked like it was undisturbed. And the apartment seemed normal. There was no signs of a struggle. It seemed orderly. Nothing obvious was missing. But there was no sign of the purse that Becky always had with her. So the purse, she always kept it in her kitchen cabinet. Um, Super weird place to keep a purse, but I guess because she didn't want just anybody coming into her home knowing where her purse was. I always knew where it was, but it was an immediate thing. Like, whereas you or I probably take our purse and throw it on the couch or throw it on the kitchen table. (laughs) Um, She put her purse in a cabinet you know, next to her stove where you and I would keep our pots and pans. Her mom knew that it was there. I knew it was there. And so whenever we went to go look for it, it wasn't in the place that she'd normally kept it. Right. And there was something even more peculiar discovered in the bedroom. Well, whenever I came over, um, Cole wasn't there. I um, think that Becky's mom, Susan, had sent um, Cole with her sister. Um, So she said, do you notice anything? And so I looked around and I said, um, I went to her bedroom and I said, hey, well, I mean, part of her mattress is missing. Like, her mattress was really high off the ground. It was like she had, like, a box spring and then a mattress and then, like, almost like a super pillow top mattress on top and I said well this isn't as high as it normally is is this do you remember this because I slept in her bed I mean whenever I'd stay over there with her I would sleep in the same bed with her so I remember sleeping like at her window height (laughs) and her bed was a lot lower um and she said well I thought so too but I thought maybe that or maybe she had gotten rid of it or you know maybe I was crazy I said no I think it was higher and she said okay well that's weird there was nothing else really out of place that we noticed the only thing that was missing was that pillow top and her purse and her and Becky's mom Susan had actually found something weird at Becky's apartment somebody had left a note for her The note was from a guy named Will, who was a friend of Becky's, and it said, quote, Hey, I stopped by, but didn't see you. The only one I saw was Cole. Give me a call. Will. So right now, there are two people who were at the apartment the night Becky vanished. We've got Phil. We've got Will. Ironic. But there are, of course, other possibilities that could explain where Becky could be. Becky was dating. Becky had friends. Cole's father was a high school romance. But by all accounts... He was out of the picture, but they were amicable. Maybe it had something to do with that, with him. Either way, alarm bells are going off, and Susan and Bobby call the cops right away. After I came over, I would say, you know, it was probably an hour after I came over that we called the police, and they said, nope, you need to wait a little bit longer. We were like, okay. So we actually sat around and waited like three or four hours, and then we called the police again and said, hey, like, she hasn't come back yet. 
this is crazy. You have got to come over here and figure this out. Um, I remember sitting in her living room and the, the or the police officer, I don't know, not the detective, but the police officer that came over was super annoyed that he had to be there because he was late for dinner. Um, I know that sounds crazy, but that's like one thing that I remember in my head that he was annoyed to be there because he thought she just left and he was late for dinner and he didn't want to deal with it. So the first cop obviously wasn't taking anything seriously at all, but the detective that they eventually speak with is so much more helpful and realizes that something is not right in this situation. And they open up an investigation and dust Becky's apartment for prints. They conduct a search of the apartment and its perimeter from top to bottom, and this detective notes that Becky's purse and the top of the mattress were missing from the apartment. There are also no sheets on her bed. But other than these few items that are missing, there really isn't a shred of evidence suggesting that something ominous had happened there. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree 50 and use code degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. At KPMG, our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on TheRealReal.com. TheRealReal is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. So the mattress missing is bizarre. And I immediately go to assault with that. Maybe like an attempt to get rid of evidence on the surface where a potential attack may have taken place. But the purse being missing is interesting and offers two possibilities. Either Becky left on her own and took her purse with her, because that's what you do when you leave your house, 
or somebody abducted her and took the purse to make it seem like she left willingly. Or took the purse in a robbery. Mm -hmm. So the detectives are given the note that had been left by Becky's friend, Will. And Bobby tells them about the call that she had with Becky, where Becky talked about this guy, Phil, who had come over and put a move on her before she kicked him out. And these really are two very solid leads to start with here. On the heels of this information, they question Becky's friends and associates, and the police are able to determine that the Phil that she referenced on that phone call was a guy named Philip Dodd, who was 31 years old. They located him and brought him in for an interview two days after Becky vanished on March 23rd. And he gave conflicting accounts about the night of Becky's disappearance. Really, though, the police didn't know what to make of him. And the police also spoke to the guy Becky was dating. We're going to call him Mike. And this is the same Mike, the one whose cousin was married to Phil at one point. And Mike said that when he woke up on the morning after Becky went missing, he had a missed call from Becky's phone at 2 a.m. So now we know Becky was alive and well at 11 p.m. when Bobby talked to her on the phone. And she attempted, or at least someone using her phone attempted, to call Mike at 2 a.m. So this is establishing a timeline of sorts. Right. And they next tracked down Will, who was Becky's friend who left that kind of interesting note at her apartment. And the police wanted to know why he went to Becky's house, what their relationship was. Was he hiding anything? Did he see Becky? And he insisted that he had nothing to do with it at all. He was Becky's friend and Becky often stayed up late. And she was the kind of friend who didn't really mind a stopover if you were in the neighborhood, something that I would hate. And he swore up and down that he stopped by, saw no sign of Becky and left the note and went home. That was it. But there was one thing that didn't look good for Will. If Will and Becky were such good friends, why would he simply leave if he saw Cole alone and there was no sign of Becky at all? And to that, he said that he just figured that Becky was either doing laundry or at a neighboring apartment. And he didn't really think much of it because she was usually so responsible. Yeah, that's really that's weird. It's such an odd move. Oh, I, I came over and your two-year-old son was around, but I'm just... I guess, I'd like, in my mind, if you're irresponsible, it would make more sense that your two-year-old is just by himself. If you're responsible... <laughs> yeah. It's then... just, he didn't want to deal. It was one thirty. He didn't want to deal, or something worse is happening. Yeah. But the, the thing is, if he wanted to make it his problem, he's staying there all night, he's staying there till Becky shows up, and he just didn't want to do it. Yeah. Or he's involved. Yeah. yeah. So they asked him what time he left the note. And he said, oh, I popped over at about 1.30. Now, that's odd because we've got the 11 p.m. call with Bobby. And now we know that Becky was gone by 1.30, but then Mike got a missed call from Becky at 2 a.m., or at least from Becky's phone. So they didn't know what this meant. And all the guys are suspects at this point, and they need to put the pieces together. But when you break it down... Any of these three men in this picture could have the motive to want to do something to Becky. We've got an ex-boyfriend slash romantic interest. We've got a man who Becky rejected after he made a sexual advance towards her. We've got a male friend who randomly comes over in the middle of the night at 1.30 in the morning without any real explanation. He sees Cole... A two-year-old alone, and then he leaves. And this leaves, leaves a note. note. Yeah, it's very odd, it's and odd. it is. It, it's very rare that on day one you have 
three yes. suspects. Yeah. Like right away. Yeah. And all of them seem sketch. Yes. So the community was in ruins on the heels of this disappearance because media attention happened right away. And this stuff just doesn't happen in Hollister. She told her best friend that uh, an individual had made an advance towards her that evening early. And um, apparently she was able to take care of things and and uh, get him out of the apartment. Police were called. They say they didn't know if she'd left or been taken, but they treated it as an abduction from the beginning. But family and friends thought the worst. Susan's drawing on her family's strength, but words and reasons are hard to come by. I mean, it's like I'm any other person. You know, this stuff don't happen. Especially in Hollister. People passing through now see Becky's missing poster in the shadow of the Super 8 where she occasionally worked. This has always been home to her. We've been here forever, it seems like. 14 years. And she's been to school here. She, made, she went to Reed. She's coming to Branson. Brownies. Brownies. Girl Scouts. But she knows a lot of people. So Becky's mom was heartbroken and really fearful that something terrible had happened to her daughter. And to leave Cole, she would have kicked, screamed, hoot, and hollered. I want her to come home. I want her to come home now. I would say that I was really scared, probably by the second or third day. It's just like, wow, she hasn't come home. This is really not like her. Something had to have happened. And then and this was whenever they came, started coming and taking pictures, and taking fingerprints. Like, they brought me into the police station to take my fingerprints to eliminate my fingerprints because I was there all the time. They found fingerprints of, well, what was later found to be Phillips in the kitchen where he had, like, put his hand on the wall and on her windowsill to like block her into the kitchen. And so that was kind of whenever it got more real. You know, they're they're really taking this seriously. So this is scary. I remember my parents, they were really worried about me being involved in the case just because it, it, you know, they were worried that somebody was gonna come after me because I was giving all of this evidence and all of this, this information to the police. And that was never something that had crossed my mind. Like, no, I just want to help find her. And police had a few theories, and all of them involved foul play, hinging primarily on the fact that Becky would not have voluntarily left her son alone. And because of this, they all suspected an abduction. But because there are no signs of forced entry or signs of a struggle at the scene, the police believed an acquaintance or friend was probably responsible for her disappearance. They spoke to everybody in Becky's life. Her friends, former teachers, family, co-workers, exes, party friends, and neighbors, but they couldn't implicate anyone in the crime. But they did have their suspicions. So initially, Phil, Will, and Mike were pretty much paralleled in being persons of interest without any one of them standing out as the most obvious choice. Until day three, when the Hollister police got a phone call from Philip Dodd and the call seemed strange, as if he was probing for information. And information he gave them on that call was conflicting with his initial interview. And they got this feeling that he was inserting himself into the investigation, as we know killers are to do. The way he was talking made it seem like he was much closer to Becky than he really was. Remember, she was very, very, very distantly connected to him. An acquaintance only hung out a handful of times with her ex who she'd reconnected with. 
this isn't a close relationship. So his behavior was very suspicious, but they couldn't arrest him on a hunch alone. If this was their guy, they would need the evidence to prove it. And days go by with no movement in the case at all. And at this point, Becky has been missing for a whole week. Becky's son, Cole, was in custody of Becky's mom, Susan. And for weeks, Susan stayed at her daughter's apartment, just hoping that she would walk through the door at any minute. But that didn't happen. The police searched a lot of the wooded areas surrounding the Hollister and Branson areas, but they turned up absolutely nothing. Susan and Becky's friends put a missing persons flyers everywhere. Well, mo- almost everywhere. It seemed like the city of Branson didn't really take kindly to these flyers. We started handing out missing persons flyers and putting up wherever, putting them up wherever we could. Um, she actually lived in Hollister, Missouri, which is just kind of like a little suburb of Branson. Um, and Hollister would take those, but whenever we started going into Branson, they wouldn't. Um, if you've never been to Branson, it's a um, very wholesome town, even though it's like super tourist trap. Um, but they don't like to say that crime happens there because it will scare tourists away. Um, and it's still like that to this day. Um, it's not quite as much so, but I remember them saying, no, you can't put that up here. It, people will see that and then they won't want to come to our establishment anymore. Susan Sutton posted missing flyers around Hollister and Branson at least where businesses would allow them. Branson won't put my posters up, won't keep them up, because it's bad for the tourists. That's mean. How, how would they like it if it was their daughter? A week after Becky's disappearance, Hollister police officially listed it as an abduction. It's out of her character. Uh, she's a very nice lady and cared for her kids. Police say she may even have known her abductor. No matter what, Susan says Becky is a fighter, and they still hope she'll come back. I want her back. I mean, Cole both want her back. Hearing things like that really reminds you that this is not just a face on a missing poster. This is a mother and a daughter that we're talking about. Police say they may not have said anything, but since the beginning, they have been treating this as an abduction. Meanwhile, Susan, Becky's mother, desperately wanted to hang onto Becky's apartment because she believed it was a crime scene. She believed this is where her daughter was abducted or maybe worse had occurred there. But understandably, she struggled to afford her home and the rents and upkeep on Becky's place. I mean, that is really expensive. I'm just a poor working girl going check by check. So tonight, the search for 19-year-old Becky Sutton continues. So the questions about where Becky could be persisted. Individuals in the community who knew Becky are learning about her disappearance. And Mike Mason, who was the principal at Reed Spring High School where Becky went to school, talked about how well-liked Becky was. And he expressed admiration for Becky for continuing school while she was pregnant with her son and how strong she was because he observed how difficult that entire situation was for her. And the community is anxiously looking for her. They want her to come back. And there's a number of vigils that are held after she disappeared. And people um, held candles and pictures of her. And her little boy, Cole, he actually attended the vigils with Becky's family. And they all talked about what a good mom she was. I want to say that it was like a month after um, we did hold a candlelight vigil um, for her, which was really hard. Um, It was in the park that was 
not even a block away from her apartment um, just to keep her memory just like hey we're still looking we're still waiting for answers um, but, you know and we had a lot of people from the community out there to you know to support that a vigil for Becky Sutton and a reward fund kept the mysterious disappearance in the public eye, but otherwise there was nothing. No clues, no leads, no suspects, no Becky. And meanwhile, the police were careful. They were clearing suspects and persons of interest in the case. Mike had an alibi, and they also cleared Will. But the one person they couldn't clear was Phil. But they still had no way of linking him to anything. It had now been months since Becky vanished from her apartment and her mom could no longer afford to keep it in addition to her own home. And it's when she started packing up her things and moving Becky out when Susan made a perplexing discovery. In the kitchen cabinet, they found Becky's missing purse and inside was her ID, medical cards, an address book, and a weird handwritten list of names. There's very little evidence in this case, uh, as far as I understand, physical evidence, minimal. That's why the smallest details, like the location of Becky's purse, could solve the case. The morning Becky was discovered missing, police and family members could not find this black and white purse. We looked all over that house. I looked in that cabinet. My sister looked in that cabinet. So it's not like I just overlooked it. And then the day I go to move her out is the day I found it. We know that the purse was gone for, uh, or at least not observed in the apartment from March until May. So that purse may have been in someone's possession during that time. And uh, something that simple could, could uh, turn this case. I remember looking in other cabinets in her kitchen. I remember looking in her living room and in her bedroom, and we couldn't find it. I wasn't there whenever it was found. Her mom says that she'd found it in the back of the cabinet, and it was a different cabinet than she would have normally would have normally kept it in. Um, but I feel like we searched that cabinet, so it is weird that it was found somewhere else and in a place that she wouldn't have normally kept it. You know, nobody has any explanation as to why it was there or why it was not found until two or three months later. So they just honestly, the, the police think that it was just it was just overlooked by everybody. Meanwhile, the police are trying to gather at least circumstantial evidence against Phil, hoping that it will lead them to something concrete that they can use to arrest him. They were curious about his movements the day after Becky went missing. And at that time, Phil was working at the Lone Star restaurant, which was a nearby eatery in town. So the police went there to look at his timesheets, and Phil told them in his interview that he went to work at 10 a.m. on the morning after Becky's disappearance. And while, yes, Phil was scheduled to work at 10 a.m. on that day, he didn't show up or clock in until 2 p.m. All right, so this is good, but this is not a smoking gun. But it does reveal, at the very least, that Phil's a liar. Yeah, and four months after Becky's disappearance, police were still getting tips. Some were good, some were useless, but they got one that looked pretty good. And a witness came forward and said that Philip Dodd had recently obtained a new truck and was planning to skip town. And Phil told the witness that he knew he was on the police's radar and he didn't want to look guilty. So he asked if she would help him with an alibi for the night of Becky's abduction. He asked the witness that if she was questioned by the police, he wanted her to tell them that he was with her 
on that night when then they were talking about. Is this the behavior in, in, of an innocent man? Or is this guilty behavior? After this occurred, months were passing and Becky's family and friends hadn't received any updates. Um, I remember I, at the time I worked at a bar in the evening. I remember going to Denny's after we got off work and there was a group of police officers and the original detective that I talked to um, was sitting there and I went up to him, you know, and I, I said, do you remember me? And do you still know what's going on? And he said, I have no idea what's going on. I transferred pre- precincts. I, you know, I don't have anything to do with that case anymore because I didn't have a good relationship with the new detective that was on the case. He didn't need anything from me. I couldn't give him any more information. So he didn't, he never interviewed me really himself. But the detective that I had talked to so much, I mean, I've been in his office probably 25 times, even just reaching out to him, you know, and he's like, I don't know. Um, And that was frustrating. Like, why don't you know? You're an integral part of this case in the beginning. Why do you not know anything? Three more months pass before police get any other useful information. And then in September of 2003, a witness contacted the Hollister police and told them that Phil had come to her house and talked about Becky with her. He made statements to her that implied that he was at Becky's apartment when she died. However, Phil said that the person who killed Becky was a friend of his named Scooty. Interesting name. Phil told her that after Scooty killed Becky, he took her body and hid it where no one would ever find it. I didn't know if she was alive or dead. Um, So I didn't know what to think because I had so many different, uh, I guess, ideas coming from the police and then her mom and then other friends, Um, you know, the friends that I knew would like that, you know, we shared. Um, Like I said, I, I didn't run with the different circles of people that she did. Um, but we, I had some other friends that did. And so, well, well, what about this person? What about this person? And um, eventually I remember getting called into the police station and they were like, hey, do you know a guy named Scooty? And I'm like, I have no idea who you're talking about. And they're like, well, that's our number one prime suspect because she was, he was there with her at the time. They said that they had multiple people tell them about Scooty. All right, so this is kind of a big development and they need to speak to phil and confront him with this and this whole scooty scenario but they look for phil and they learn that he was actually incarcerated in texarkana which is in texas for an unrelated offense and when police actually finally track him down Phil didn't deny knowledge of this Scooty story, but he didn't want to answer any questions. He refused about Scooty, about the situation, everything. And the police, you know, with this information, they started searching for Scooty, but there were no records that could ever be found for a person using that name, using that nickname, using that alias. And the police believed that Phil actually was their guy, but they still didn't have what they needed to prosecute him. But they were comforted by the fact that he was behind bars, at least for the time being. But Becky's friends and family members don't really know anything that's going on. This is all going on behind the scenes. I I don't even know if I can really put it into words how it felt. You know, there was definitely that sadness and that fear of what what happened to her and is she okay and... 
you know, you really do. You look different places and you look in a crowd. Is she here? You look whenever you go past ditches and stuff like, am I going to see her body somewhere? Which is such a strange feeling. You never think that you're going to look for a person in a field. So it's, it's definitely a surreal feeling. But also there, there is that, you know, you can't, you can't mourn because she's not gone. She may come back. You almost feel like you do have to mourn her because she's not there. And while there were many unanswered questions about where Becky was and how she was doing and what she was doing, one question was about to be answered. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. So in January of 2004, an elderly man went to the authorities in Taney County, and he said that a relative of his had found human remains in the Mark Twain National Forest. Then they asked him about this, and the man refused to talk about who this relative was. He didn't want to implicate his relative. And he actually didn't know where the remains were exactly. So this is a huge area. This forest is gigantic. And it's not easy to locate organic matter like bones in an area so vast. So they start looking. But six weeks later, they find a skeleton stuffed into a rock overhang in the National Forest near this unpaved logging road. And this road is one of the few unpaved roads that are left in the area, it would be impassable for the average car. But the road is actually well known to deer hunters and those who use it for four-wheeling. And at a glance, the police couldn't even tell whether the skeleton belonged to a man or a woman. And this particular area was about 35 miles where Becky had originally disappeared from. And while they couldn't deduce whether this was a homicide by simply looking at the remains, they were able to based on the meticulous way that these remains were actually hidden. Someone literally built a wall of stones and sealed off a small rock overhang, which is like a very shallow cave with a broad, wide opening. It's very obvious that this was placed there. It wasn't just by happenstance. And the police suspected that this could be Becky, but they needed to do testing to be sure. Um, her mom had called me and said they found remains that they think is Becky. And then I remember her asking me, do you remember if she had a belly button ring that looked like this? 
I'm going to say right now is in every single thing that you will find, it says that it matched the belly button ring that she would have worn. And it didn't. That was one of our things that like, I never knew her to wear a belly button ring like this. Yes, she had her belly button pierced, but she always just wore like kind of one of those curved hoops in it and not like a ring with like a dangly thing on it, which is what they found. And that was one of those things like, well, that's not her. It's not her if this is it. And also um, she said, well, they didn't find her ring that she wore on her right hand, which would have been the hand that was closest to the inside of that outcropping. So that was weird. They have just chalked up to, well, it, it was just gone. And, you know, then she just changed her belly button ring. I didn't think it was her. Like, nope, nope, all these signs had the belly button ring and her ring wasn't there. And nope, it's not her. She's not dead. She's missing. She's gone. They can't do dental records and her body is too far decomposed to do like a visual identification. So they're going to, they're doing the DNA testing. They did come back that it was her. You want to keep that hope alive that they're still alive and so yes while it was some type of closure it was still like not something that you want to hear and during the recovery of the remains police combed through the surrounding area while they were excavating the bones in the hopes that there may be some evidence just something that could implicate her killer so they found a weathered shirt made out of cotton it was a t-shirt style And they found an underwire bra and a small belly button ring and also a condom. To take a close look at these photographs, police removed Becky's bones from behind this man-made rock formation. It's probable that the person that brought her here had a connection to, to Bradleyville and had a connection to this spot itself. The spot could also be a hint to the killer's identity. It's important to see that someone took the time to dispose of her in this way. Uh, That in itself is unordinary in the sense that uh, most predators, sexual predators or uh, killers will find an easy way to dispose of their victims. So while the discovery of the body brought some answers, it also presented a difficult reality. There was no physical evidence with her body that could help reveal who her killer was. All of it could be linked to Becky, but nothing to her killer. So hope that the person who killed Becky, who'd be held accountable for taking her life, was really dwindling. Her disappearance lasted a year. Now another year has passed since her body was found. Tonight, an update on the search for the killer of Becky Sutton. We begin with a story as sad as it is mysterious. The search for Becky Sutton ended last year with the discovery of her murdered body. Now the search for the person responsible has lasted a year as well. Tonight, the clues her mother hopes will help capture the killer. Somebody knows something out there. Somebody knows, and I'd like to know how they're sleeping. Two years after her daughter disappeared and one year after her body was found here along a creek in Bradleyville, Susan Sutton still wants the truth. And while Becky's family still didn't know who was responsible for taking her life, they finally got to bury her. In May of 2004, Becky was laid to rest at a cemetery in Alton, Illinois, where other family members were also buried. Everyone involved in this case knew this was a homicide. And despite that, it took over a year for Becky's mother to get her daughter's death certificate, which indicated her cause of death. So the medical examiner in this case noted the cause of death as probable asphyxiation due to strangulation. There were no stab wounds, no gunshots, 
no catastrophic damage to her bones or skull fractures. And based on how long her skeleton had been in the elements, that me could not determine whether or not drugs or alcohol played any role in her death. You know, they said asphyxiation due to strangulation. And so we were like, well, what? Um, and that was actually left out of a lot of different reports. And so I didn't actually know about that until after after we had buried her. At the time, they said they didn't know, which now if you look at articles, it says a little strangulation, which we know was the case. But once we did find out, you know, that was, oh my gosh, no, because how could somebody strangle her? And then, you know, all those things come up of like, did it hurt? Did it, was she struggling? Did she, you know, how did, how did she not wake up Cole? Cause she slept in the same room as her. You know, maybe, well, thank God she didn't wake up Cole because then, you know, maybe Cole would have been dead too. Who knows who this maniac was that did this to her? So yeah, it was hard to hear that she had died of strangulation. Days turned into weeks, weeks into months months into years. Loved ones of Becky's had passed out thousands of flyers, rallied for news coverage, conducted vigils, and missed her every single day. The original officers on the case were burdened by it not being solved, but they were simply just out of leads and out of ways to really implicate Phil. And that's when the Hollister police get a call that they were really not expecting. So it was March 2013. That's 10 years after Becky went missing, nine years since her body was found. And guess who was calling the police? It was Phil. Phil was now 41. And at this point, Phil was incarcerated again. And he was serving a 14-year sentence in the Missouri uh, Department of Corrections for a Jasper County bank robbery. So the police went to see him. And he started off coy. And he was on his same bullshit and he was giving conflicting stories, this or that. But the cops kept him talking. And if somebody keeps talking, you still have a chance. You want to keep them talking. And eventually, Phil talked enough that details began coming out. And when the police asked Phil why he reached out to them, he said it was his faith. He said he had a desire to serve Christ. And whether he did it in prison walls or outside, it didn't matter. He still wanted to serve Christ. So Phil's first story was uh, a lukewarm one foot foot in, one foot out confession. So what he said was, that he had previously been involved in a sexual relationship with Becky prior to the night she went missing and was at her house partying with her on the night she disappeared. He said she died because she overdosed. And the police knew he was giving half-truths and accepting some blame, but not really copying to exactly what he'd done. And at this point, it's been 10 years. It's been 10 years of misery for the families, 10 years of wasted resources from law enforcement, 10 years of bullshit. They were pissed. They were done. They decided to indict him for first-degree murder. And he'd be facing the death penalty if he was convicted after going to trial. This is all happening. And remember, Bobby... Bobby's still the last person who spoke to Becky. But it had been 10 years, and there's no answers. And you are forced to move on. 
not you never forget you never lose love for but the missing it's purgatory and you can't not move on with your life and when she did hear about this it would hit her like a ton of bricks I I moved on um, and not saying that I forgot because I didn't. Um, I still have a necklace with her birthstone hanging in my car um, to this day. It stays with me. It stayed with me through four different vehicles. And anybody who has been in my life for a while knows about Becky. One day, I my stepmom called me and she said, uh, Bobby, you have, there was a police officer here looking for you. They ha- they're serving you. And I was like, they're serving me with what? And she's like, I don't know. They wouldn't tell me. So I gave them your address and they're coming to serve you. And I was like, oh my God, like freaked me out. Like I had no idea what was happening. I'm like, I didn't do anything wrong. What's going on? I um, actually contacted the police department where I live and they had actually not been given the papers yet. And so I called the police department where my parents live. So they were like, oh yeah, we, we are, we are serving you. And I was like, well, with what? They're like, well, you have to come here. So I went to the police station and they're like here. And it was, it was a subpoena um, to testify. And I was like, oh my God. And it brought so many memories back. And it was um, because they had been searching me for me for, I mean, a month. I was supposed to be in court in three days um, to testify against Philip. I want to punctuate the fact that Bobby didn't even know that Philip had been arrested. And then suddenly she's supposed to be in Branson in three days to testify. So imagine processing all this information, these emotions, and really looking at Philip and realizing like you killed my best friend and how and what she was thinking about in terms of him. You took somebody away from somebody with your bare hands. Um, so all of, you know, <laughs> there were so many emotions going once I found out. And once I had gathered even more information about this man who had done this to her. Yeah. And there wasn't any time. It was like, well, you have to come to Branson like now. I was like, okay, let me get somebody to cover me at work. Um, so... She goes to her hometown to testify in the murder case of her best friend. And the DA's tactic worked, and Phil started talking in exchange for a deal. They would downgrade his charges to second-degree murder in exchange for telling the truth and sparing the Sutton family an entire trial. So he started talking. And Bobby was already halfway to Branson for the trial when he started talking. So she got an interesting phone call. I was on my way down there and I made it about halfway down and she called me and she said, he pled guilty. You don't have to come. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. Like you have put me through the most emotional roller coaster that anybody has ever been in, in a matter of five hours. Thankfully, Bobby was spared uh, facing Phil in court because I can't imagine how difficult that would be given what's happened. I was happy that he was caught. I was mad that it had gone on so long. I was sad that that she was gone because it brought back every single emotion that you had, that I had whenever the day that she came up missing. And, you know, things, emotions that I hadn't thought about. Um, And again, not that I hadn't thought about her, but you don't, think about those same emotions until something significant like that happens. And that brought back every emotion that I ever had during that whole 
process of trying to find her. But then I was so angry that this guy had waited 10 years to confess. And like, what kind of monster are you that you just let somebody's family and friends and son just go on with life without knowing why? Why was this person, why was their mom, why was their daughter, why was their friend dead? I, me being the person that I am, I tried to research everything, everything about him, everything. I wanted to see his picture. I wanted to see what his face looked like. And the first came, picture that I came up, it was like a mugshot of him in like an orange jumpsuit and he was smiling. And I just wanted to reach through the computer and strangle him and myself because it was just, it was disgusting. I think he's evil. Um, and whether that be that drugs made him evil or whether that be he's evil incarnate, um, he's evil. I don't think he's sick. I, I, you know, I don't, I think that he's just a disgusting human. During Phil's confession, he admitted that he had never been involved in a sexual relationship with Becky. And he went to her apartment that night with hopes of getting high and having sex with her. When she rejected him, he strangled her in a fit of rage on her bed And this is all as Cole, her son, slept just a few feet away. And he said that he removed Becky's body from her apartment and he placed the body in his car, in his vehicle. Then he drove around for a period of time and he eventually disposed Becky's body under this rock outcropping. And built a wall. Yeah, he he gathered these rocks and he used them to cover the body and create a barrier. And if you ever, if you see the pictures of this, it's crazy of this r- rock formation. It's almost like when you see in colonial times, like the way that they built rock a building. Walls. No, it's like yeah. masonry. It's yeah. Really, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's so strange because it's so meticulous, but it's so obvious. Yeah, they. If you do see the picture, it's it's like they're placed so perfectly on top of each other, like it's like bricks almost. Yeah. It's yeah. odd. It, just, exactly. It draws it, more attention. Either way, let's get back to Phil's confession. What was he saying? So then he went to Becky's apartment and he took off the sheets. He took a pillow and he took off the pillow top mattress and any other items that were inside the residence that might contain his DNA, his hairs or whatever. Because, so it, it, it became obvious that this is where he did the crime, was right there. And after he went to Becky's for the second time, he drove back to Branson and cleaned his car of any evidence and threw the floor mats from his car into a dumpster, lit the mattress and sheets on fire at a construction site. He then admitted to fabricating the entire story about quote-unquote Scooty, who was just a figment of his imagination. Phil has told varying stories, and while it will never truly be known exactly what happened, he does admit to murdering her. And he said that he had been attracted to Becky ever since his cousin-in-law dated her. It begs the question, how did this happen? Which thinking back now like that's super frustrating like hello I just gave you a name and this person has called you and this person has you know been into interview you know be interviewed by you guys and you did nothing you couldn't put two and two together but you know I'm not the police Phil pleaded guilty to second degree murder Becky's family was present he received 30 years He said at his sentencing, quote, I grieve constantly because of my actions. I don't want to blame it on the drugs, but the anger and bitterness comes out in ways you don't expect. I never expected to take someone's life. 
And when he received his sentence, he said, quote, they're right. I deserve the max and I deserve this. The only thing I can do now is seek mercy from God. It, you know, it did allow you to close the chapter. Unfortunately, you don't ever forget about it. Um, I mean, can you ever really close a chapter on a friend who died that soon in life? Um, and by those, you know, under those circumstances, I don't, I don't know. Because I don't think that that's ever closure. She didn't die, but it was somebody else who, who took her life. Yes, in a sense, it was closure, but in a sense, no. I mean, there's, there's still always going to be that, you know, what could have been. Would she have gotten married? I mean, would she have seen Cole grow up? Would she, you know, have gone on to become, you know, she wanted to be, um, you know, a early childhood education she wanted to go into early childhood education. And so would that have been something that she would have followed? Um, I don't know. So according to court documents in a prepared statement, and this is going to devastate you, Becky's son, Cole, who was two when his mom went missing, and he was at this point almost 13. And he said, quote, everyone has told me how wonderful my mom was. And it makes me upset that I don't remember her or remember what my life used to be like. And so it's so heartbreaking. And Phil is the person who took Becky away from Cole, from Susan, from Bobby, from everyone who loved her. And what's interesting is that I tried to do a deep dive to figure out who this guy is. But the truth is, Many details about him remain very, very elusive. We know that he spent a lot of time in prison over the years, which I'm sure is a contributing factor to me not being able to find much about him. I did re read that Phil had been a licensed vocational nurse in Texas until he lost his license in 2006, which is three years after Becky was murdered by him. And in terms of what I can find about him on the internet, there isn't much. I did find one article detailing an arrest at age 18 where he stole a 1991 Ford Mustang from Johnny Williams Ford in Texas and he lit it on fire. We do know that he was married at least once to Becky's ex's cousin. We know he's now a born again Christian. We know he's going to rot in prison and we know he's a murderer who stole Becky from her family and her friends. And while Phil may have taken Becky, they keep her alive within them. Almost everything um, that I remember from Becky had Cole in it. Um, he was such a major part of her life. He was, oh gosh, he was such a fun kid. No matter what kind of predicament she was in, I mean, like I said, she was, she had a lot of financial stuff, but she was always positive. Um, nope, this is something else is coming around the corner and this is going to be good. Um, and she brought out the positivity in other people around her too. It was not, you know, how am I going to fix this? It was like, well, we're going to figure it out. Um, she did have a great laugh. I can hear it still. She always thought of the positive things. There's no doubt that when you're close to something like this, it changes you. 
I wouldn't say that I am more skeptical of people. I mean, I guess I'm I'm a skeptic skeptical of people anyways. I am a huge lover of all things crime. But I also, even to this day, I still believe that, you know, the majority of the people in the world are good. And yes, there are going to be those shitty people out there, but the majority of the people are good. And I genuinely trust a lot of people. It has made me, I know that whenever I was being interviewed by the police, it was, but also I look at you know, those relationships, is, they're a little, you know, more important and you don't want to take those for granted. You don't want to take any relationship that you have for granted because you don't know when it's going to be gone. So in a case this layered and complex and one that goes over the span of 10 years, there are a lot of questions to be had in terms of the investigation. And in this case in particular, there are a couple really glaring uh perplexing elements. And one is the purse. Right. And as Phil confessed to the entire crime and was pretty, I believe, honest about everything that he was talking about, he didn't have any idea about that purse. He didn't know how it got back into the house. So that's a weird thing because apparently the family and friends tore apart that house trying to look for it because she always put a purse in the same little cabinet spot. It was gone, and then it was there yeah. months later. And I think, but can we believe him? Because he came back a second time to hide evidence. Maybe he took it with him initially. Yeah. Maybe he brought it back. Maybe he was conflicted about keeping it. Maybe he wanted a trophy. Maybe he's not that sick. Maybe he's like, this purse will sink me. I need to put it back. Because Bobby sounded so sure in that they tore it apart. Place apart. Not only that, the police came in. They dusted for prints. <laughs> They tore it apart. Yeah. It sounds odd to me in a one-bedroom apartment. The purse, you can find... I mean, if you guys decide to go down the rabbit hole, there are pictures of this purse. It looks more like a little duffel bag. It's not small. Yeah. It's like... It's a, not easily overlooked. Cylindrical. It's not a tiny bag. So I don't see how in a one-bedroom apartment that could have happened unless it was put back. No, it was put back. Th- but it's weird. Th- Why wouldn't you just no, admit no, to it? Yes, but there's no chance it wasn't put back. No, uh, uh, of course it's put back. I but it's just weird to me for somebody to actually come clean with everything for, you know, whatever up, reason yeah. he's doing it. And then to just be like, I didn't do th- yeah. Like, I didn't put it back. But what would it matter if you put it back or not in the grand scheme of what his conviction would be? Well, yeah, because but- but his his uh, propensity to to lie is so strong. I mean, yeah. he called the cops 10 years later and said, I want to confess. Right. Then they come and he says this overdose story because he's trying to say that I've turned over to my faith, but he's still ashamed. He's like half admitting. Yeah. He's yeah. half admitting. So exactly maybe there's right. a yeah. third visit where he masturbated in the place or something. And he's just not going to admit to like, right. I also put the purse back. Yeah. He's just still, he doesn't want to accept how, how evil and sick he is. No, right? b- bottom line, we know it was Phil. Oh, yeah. Bottom line. Oh, yeah. No doubt about that. The purse is a mystery. It's odd. And a second mystery is the timeline because we talked about... It's not a mystery. It's just luck for him because we talked about uh, Bobby's call at 11 p.m. with Becky. Where Phil was there the first time. Well, Phil had just been kicked out. Or been kicked out. Just been kicked out the yes. first time. And then Will who has been cleared has no implication in this said at one thirty he left a note and Cole was alone. Then Becky's ex-boyfriend who she was rekindling with, who they were starting to be romantically involved again, had a missed call from her at, 
at 2 a.m. No reason to lie. Who knows? Who knows? There's some questions. Yeah, it's a little bit but odd. Cases that drag on 10 years, often the initial investigations are not done as carefully. Uh, that would have been an easy question to answer back then. Really hard now. Mm-hmm. And police departments aren't perfect. I mean, Becky wasn't a perfect kid. They had lots of reasons, I'm sure, to be like, she disappeared or she, she'll be back soon. And you don't necessarily go over everything with a fine-tooth comb until you know for sure. Right. So I don't think anyone's evil here other than the killer. Uh, but these things happen. All right. Well, thank you so much to our first degree connection, Bobby, for telling her story. Um, we really appreciate and we're very honored to be able to um, let us tell your story. If anybody else has a story they'd like to tell, please reach out to us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Billy Jensen at Alexis Linkletter at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group where we're talking all things true crime all the time. And you might get a little merch discount in there and uh, stick around because we're going to kill some time and talk about our celebrity crushes on the killing time. So remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But But not not that that close. Happy uh, Equal Day. No, that wasn't it. It was like Happy Beauty Day or oh, something. Oh, Beauty Day. To you, Jacqueline. Thank you. Because you're so pretty. Oh my God, guys. What about me? No, just me. <laughs> really? You're very pretty. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>
it's just made of metal, but it's not different. Yeah. The the yeah, fingers you, are the same. Yes. I played both. <laughs> I you, have not you, even looked at a picture of Kenny You don't, you don't see episode. Clarence Clemens playing that, bottom line. I don't know who Clarence Clemens is. <laughs> I don't either. And you bring him up a lot and you need to stop him. <laughs> Do I bring is him up? Is he from the nineteen twenties? No, he's you brought he's... Clarence Clemens up a few t- every time Kenny G comes up and every time we shame you because we don't know who it is. God, Billy, we're not nerds like you. He's the saxophone <laughs> player for Bruce Springsteen and the E Street band. Okay? Oh my god. Okay. So played the greatest uh, saxophone enough. solo people ever. Turn, people are gonna turn this off. Nobody Billy, okay. Not everybody has a photographic memory like you do and remembers these random obscure facts and finds them interesting. Mm-hmm. No. What does that sound? That's Somebody's a dog. Screaming? No, it's a dog. It's a dog oh. screaming. All right. Yeah. Welcome to Hollywood. <laughs> Anyways. Um, okay. It could have been a person. It could have been a dog. Been. I sounded like a person. So for this episode or this segment of Killing Time, we've decided to talk about our celebrity crushes. We have... Um, Broke them off into f- six, five, five, five different categories. And we would like you to fill these all out as well. The categories are marriage material crush, lust crush, bestie crush, apocalyptic crush. And wait, there's six guilty pleasure because I forgot bestie party Besties. and then party crush, party crush and then guilty pleasure crush. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go through them. I, I forgot my I don't have a bestie crush, but I'll come up with one. Okay. Um, let's start a marriage material crush. Billy, you start. Who is a marriage material celebrity? Celebrity? I'm already married, but that is not. Do you hear that? (laughs) I know this dog very well. That does not sound like a dog. That dog's name is Hiro, H-A-R-O, H-I-R-O, Japanese. Uh Mm -hmm. Hiro. He's known me for five years and he barks at me every day. Mm -hmm. He goes, it's because his owner is gone Mm -hmm. and he's. He mourns Aww. her every time. That is sad. It's I like the dog. It's he doesn't bother me, it's but he bothers me. everybody else. Okay, Billy, marriage material crush. Robin Wright. Anticlimactic. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Robin Wright Penn? Yeah. Well, she, she doesn't have the pen anymore, but yeah. Who's that? I'm at, I'm bored by that. Oh okay. my god. Wow. All right. I don't know. But who, who is she? Honestly. She goes from being uh, in The Princess Bride to oh my being, God. The, being the president of the United States of America. She's a total Wait, badass. in the band, Presidents of the United States of America? No, like oh. the one that sang Peaches? No, not that one. That good band from the 90s. Not right? really Nice a alternative good band. radio rock. No, not yeah, really. it is. Yeah. She, she was in Forrest Gump. Okay, I don't know who that is. So I'll go next. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> my marriage material crush is Paul Rudd. He seems like, and I have heard, he is a great guy. He seems so kind. And do you guys watch, have you ever watched Hot Ones? Yes. So it's this YouTube series of this guy who's, his name is Sean Evans, who is also my marriage material crush, that does celebrity interviews while they're eating, Mm. like, the hottest hot sauces. Yes, I've seen his. Mm. So the celebrities are literally fucking dying from, it's like the hottest hot sauce you can get while he's asking them these really, like, beautiful questions about their lives. So they're both, and I watched one of them together, so they're both my marriage material crushes. Right. Alexis? All right, this um I hope this doesn't make anyone feel uncomfortable. My marriage material crush is Jared Monaco. <laughs> so if there was no Jacqueline and there was no Jacqueline, I and I met Jared, I'd be like, that's 
What a guy. He, I'll marry that guy. He's the guy you marry. I know. He's he's not the guy. Jared, that you, if you're listening, and this goes down the toilet, you know who to call. <laughs> <laughs> and they, one of my other best friends was saying the same thing the other night. Jared, you have lots of options if I mysteriously die one day. Right. All of my best friends. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next one is, what's our next category? Lust. Lust crush. Billy? You know what? I'm going to go for... My first ever crush. Oh, that's a good one. Julie Newmar. <laughs> Julie Newmar was Catwoman from Batman. You should have gone with Michelle Pfeiffer. No, 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 no. Ju- Julie Newmar basically ruined everything for me. Do you know the demographic of our listeners? I don't care. I, I don't care. Fucking Google it. You guys can Google it. Julie I know our demographic. Newmar? Yes. Can I, am I gonna all of her pictures are in black and white? <laughs> I want so you, you know what that's she alive? Two, She's eighty six. Two years ago, I was <laughs> I was on the rooftop of the Roosevelt Hotel, she was hot. and I I saw this woman, and she was like really tall, she was 80? really regal, and I was like, who is that woman? And I was with Lenora, and then like after, I was like, who is that woman? She's like, oh, that was Julie Newmar. I was like. Why the hell did you not introduce me? Because that woman was all about it for me. And (laughs) that was my first introduction to kind of womanhood when I was four years old. Yeah. We can't spend too much time on this because people aren't going to resonate at all. And they'll get bored. Okay. So I'll go. Okay. My last crush (laughs) is, and everybody will know who this is, Charlie Hunnam or a young Brad Pitt. Like interview with a vampire Brad Pitt. Long... Luscious. Ooh. I love. I no. love a blonde. No, have you seen Brad Pitt in Legends of the Fall? Legends of the Fall. Legends is of even the Fall. Better. Brad Pitt is no, the no. Brad Pitt. But, but Brad, Brad Pitt. The vampire. They're both. It's around the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Brad Pitt in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is so much hotter than all of that. No. Yeah, but he's like in his fifties now. And yeah, but he you know is what? still hot. Of he's super when hot. He, when he takes his shirt off on the roof, I'm all about that. Uh, he's a beautiful man with a very symmetrical face. I have done it. I used to be obsessed with facial symmetry, so I would take all these celebrities and split their face into right and left mm-hmm. and see how symmetrical they were. And he is perfect. All right. Well, mine is Joe Manganiello. Uh, hot. Mm-hmm. Hot and so tall. And that is so, you know, that is like my type. That's your type. See, mine's a blonde. Yours is a, my, like a he looks tall, dark man. Like, like a mixture of some of my ex-boyfriends, but I've never dated anyone that tall. Yeah. They're all like short versions of him. <laughs> I date like little <laughs> squished stud <down>. versions. <laughs> you did Little like downs. five, nine and a half versions uh-huh. of Joe Manganiello. Yeah, you and do. it bites me in the ass every time. It's okay. And I'm never doing it again. Because you just envision them a foot taller. Right? I'm like, if only. I, I feel like I've said this to you. I'm like, imagine if they were a foot taller. <laughs> no, and literally, if we were in Park City. We were in Park City. I was like, imagine if that guy, I'm not going to say Max's ne- last name because I'm not name because I'm not a dick. But Jack would be like, oh, you couldn't date him. He'd be too hot. No, and he would treat you like shit. shit. Well, well, he did. did but like, <laughs> like more shit. Worse shit. With the dra- dating trifecta. Alexis and I came up with a dating trifecta. What's that? A guy will cheat on you if he He's tall, tall hot, hot, and has, and has a good, good hairline. Hair Bill, fuck. Well, we're not dating Billy, but Billy fits the bill. Mm, yeah, but there's some problems there. Yeah, there are. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, and like I, yeah, <laughs> I won't say anything further. Okay. Uh, next one, bestie crush. So this is somebody that you like. They could be your bestie forever. 
All right, I want the long-haired guy from um, Queer Eye, but I can't remember his name. JVN. Oh my god, yes, Jonathan Van Ness. Love him. He's so when sweet. When I cry, he cries. Like I'm welling up in a moment, and then the camera cuts to him, and he's crying. I'm like, we <laughs> have the one. same, the same things get us. Yeah. And I just, he's so kind, and his beautiful hair, and I just. He's really, sweet. I and I know you know him, Jack. So like maybe you can make this happen for me. I need him. I do have to say, Karamo is my favorite of them, though. Karamo is like one of my well, favorite. He's people like I've a ever smooth, met. like smooth jazz embodied in a person. Yeah, he's so like his voice is he's so perfect. soothing, and his he's great too. But I just I cry when he cries. Okay, and that really resonates. So JVN, who is yours, Billy? Uh, Lita Dunham. I think she's so creative i think she's so smart and i think she's and she was in the tarantino movie which i'm still obsessed with so she was in that yeah what'd she do would you guys still haven't watched no i'm not gonna tell you what she did a A lot of people don't like lena dunham yeah but i i am indifferent personally yeah i no comment i did love girls i I loved girls until it got weird what part got weird yeah what part got weird it just got sad yeah, yeah but you know but what? It's real. It's raw. I liked Jack, it for a while. Jack, life gets sad. I don't like sad things. I don't like watching sad things. You have a true crime podcast, so yeah, it's listening. It's not l- yeah. watching. Yes. Okay. Mine is Larry David. That's a good one. Obviously. Mm-hmm. Oh, I should have said George Costanza. Ah, that's your guy. That's a fictional character. Though. I'll take the real guy. But George is Larry. George is Larry. Yeah, so look, you're right. I'll take Jason Alexander. I follow him on Twitter and he makes me laugh all the Does time. Does he? He's fucking funny guy. I bet he is funny in real Jason life. Jason Alexander's amazing. I'll be the... Fine. Sorry, Billy. Fictional characters. The guy's obsessed with Disney. Jason Alexander. <laughs> all right. I, I have not mentioned, you know... But you wanted to. I bet you were like, can yeah, you see Mickey Mouse? <laughs> <laughs> can my lust crush be Mickey Mouse? <laughs> sicko. God damn it. Okay, next one. Apocalyptic crush. Billy, who is it? Uh, Zoe Bell. I don't know who that is. Don't know who the fuck that means. All right, Zoe Bell was a <laughs> is a stunt woman. Billy, the Billy answers this are the is worst. so bad. Oh my god, people are getting so bored by this. <laughs> you, you're, you, no, she was the stunt woman for Xena, the Warrior Princess. Oh, she I was my Xena. favorite show. She I'm yes, sorry, she was too. the stunt woman for that, just, and now she's in um she's in all of Tarantino's movies. She was the woman she's in a Death stunt Proof. Woman though, no, no one no, knows no, who it is. No, she was the actress that was the woman in Death Proof that actually is hanging on the roof of the car. I've never seen that movie. Oh my so. god. <laughs> Good one, Billy. Again, another name. Zoe Bell, know. honestly, um, Zoe Bell is a total badass. She would be out of all of these. <sighs> boom. Okay, my turn. Uh, go. Go. See, I think Matthew McConaughey would be a good all apocalyptic. Right, right, so right. uh, I have two. Okay. One is our good friend Tara Newell. Oh, yeah. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, I want that bitch with mm-hmm. me. Yep. That she's like pint size, but like tougher than me, even though I'm twice her size. Yeah. And I'll just carry her on my shoulders and we'll just kill everyone. I like that. Yeah. Tara, we're seeing Tara tomorrow. We're excited about that. Yeah. And then um, Matthew McConaughey, the three of us. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> Name a better trio. Name, okay. Try. Mine is, and neither of you guys watched Lost, did you? I did. Oh, mine did. is a fictional character, John Locke. It's your dad. Because he, he, he's my dad. Your dad my, looks like him. He, and he reminds, like, there's so many qualities of John Locke that remind me of my dad. Like, the good ones, not the shitty ones. And John Locke, like, you know, the island was his. And the world will be his when the world goes to shit. 
That's a metaphor for uh, Bill Vanek. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, Bill, which I know you are, because you listen to all of Jacqueline's yeah, that's projects. Right. Hey, Dad. Okay. Do you want to be my dad, Bill? He does. <laughs> He'll adopt you. I love that. Okay. Party crush. This is somebody that you want to like rage with, Billy. Somebody I don't know. All right. I'm a Gen Xer. Courtney loves. Oh, okay, that's, that's good. good. One. I like that. Good answer. job, Billy. Oh wow, I finally, I finally, <laughs> I finally got my approval from well, my. Because you made you, you talked about somebody that was from the last like it's century. Supposed to be celebrities, and you said a bunch of people no one knows. I did not. You said I somebody said... from the 1920s. She was not from the 1920s. It was the 1960s. That's like how when... dare you? I was looking through these like celebrities who party, and one of them was Nikola Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> and Billy's like, I would have loved to have a drink with him. Like, yes. He died 150 years ago. <sighs> I bet you have to party to be that creative. That's yeah. well, yeah. You probably took hella brooding. hella hallucinogens. Yeah, exactly. Him and Leonardo da Vinci. Okay, mine is Bill Murray. That's good. That's a good one. And Blake Shelton. I'd love really? to get drunk with Blake Shelton. He's he loves partying. Yeah. He looks like such a good time. Yeah, I hate no, all I see, of his I, songs, I... but he looks like so much fun, <laughs> and he's hot and tall. Okay, well, I have two. Okay. Um, one is Andy Dick because everybody has a good Andy Dick story. That's yes. true. And I don't have one yet. Um, the second is Lindsay Lohan because I want to be a meme. Mm. Yeah. And God, she when keeps she did, herself from when these she dances. did like Mickey Mouse bitch and did her hair flip. And I was like, I could have been in that meme. <laughs> <laughs> I could have been there. Yeah. And I feel that I'm not going to go viral unless I hang out with her. That's no. right. Long that, Island. Th- that's right. you're in. Okay. Last one is guilty pleasure crush. Billy. Wait a minute. That's fine. Into- we'll skip you. What? Just kidding. We'll go first, and then you think of why. Okay, all right, all oh, right. did you not know that was a... No, no, no. Oh. no, no. You, okay, guys, you, go, you guys added that. My guilty cr- pleasure crush is... I have two. One, Chris Angel. Love him. Hot. Love the eyeliner. Love magic. Second, Zach Baggins from Ghost Adventurers. You guys ever watched that show? <sighs> he's like Chris Angel, but he hunts ghosts. But he's like a douchey bro. That's like, don't fucking touch me to the ghosts. Okay. I have two also. Okay. My first one is Snoop Dogg. Okay. Why is that that guilty pleasure? I just think so. Snoop Dogg's so smooth. He's like, you know, this and that and whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And did you ever see me? Did you ever see the movie baby boy? No. With Omar Epps? No. And, uh, what is the America's Next Top Model host? Tyra Banks. Tyra, Tyra Banks. Banks. Snoop Dogg's in that, and he's so sexy somehow. It's Snoop, if you're listening. <laughs> anyway, Snoop did follow me on Instagram for a while. What? Mm-hmm. We're what trying a, to get him happened? on Lady Gang show. I don't know. Anyways, what's your other one? Um, my other one I had, and then I lost. All right, Billy. Snoop Dogg. No. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick that as well. Snoop Dogg's Guilty awesome. pleasure. You know what I mean? I'm not. I'm not guilty. Yeah. All right. Well, well, that was a really fun. <laughs> Anyways, Snoop Dogg does still follow me on Instagram. Oh. Will you DM him and be like, I yeah. have someone for you to set you up with, even though I think he's married. Um. Sure. Okay. Well, on that note, uh, thanks for If you're in our time. secret Facebook group, we want your celebrity. Yes. We want your yeah. crushes in these categories. When. This episode comes out. I'll make a little post and everybody can fill out the little questionnaire. And I want to see everybody's celebrity crushes. It's a fun game. Totally. All right. Well, oh, my guilty Jared Leto because he's so obnoxious. 
but hot. He's so hot. He would be a, a lust crush. But we saw him. No, okay. he you know, we be... saw him at Coachella, and he wouldn't shake anyone's hand. Oh yeah, <laughs> he would be an apocalyptic crush because he doesn't age. So I think that he might be an alien. Right. So he knows how to get mm. out of here. Like he, I would follow him, and he also has a cult. So right. We should do an episode on that. Yes, Jared, if you're listening, we love you. Not Jared Monaco, but Jared Leto. No, yeah. Jared. Monaco, you are my marriage crush. So if you're listening, <laughs> sup? Put me on the yeah. back burner. I'm here ja- for you. Jared. Go into Rockstar uh, Twitter and then reach out to. Yeah, we need we the need other Jared. Jared. Leto. Yeah. Okay. Well, we killed some time, and uh, that's showbiz baby. That's showbiz, showbiz baby. baby. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. All right. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.